0: So we continue in our afternoon sequence, in the four measurables, returning now to the cultivation of compassion, which of course is an aspiration that we may be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And as we did in the first cycle, what I'd like to do in in the three afternoons that we devote to this is go from coarse to subtle. It's a very traditional kind of sequence trend in Buddhist meditative practice altogether. I think very very useful, very wise. As we have the mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind also, generally speaking, going from coarse to subtle. And so as we cultivate this aspiration for freedom, what I would suggest is that we start on this coarsest level that is pertaining to the coarsest level of suffering, blatant suffering, the suffering of suffering, as it's called. And it's quite important too, I think, in the in the practice, to be focusing especially on freedom from suffering where there seems to be a chance, where it seems actually feasible. I spoke with someone recently that made made a comment that I think is true for many, if not all of us, and that is with our unprecedented, that is our generation this period right now in history, our unprecedented exposure to the suffering and the evil in the world. Uh, it's ever so easy to be completely overwhelmed, so compassion doesn't arise. A sense of radical disempowerment arises. Once he's the magnitude, what can I do? You know, if I were Bill Gates, if I if I was Carlos Slim, I could throw a few tens of billions of dollars at it. That might help, but I don't have that money. I, I don't have. I have nothing much, and so it doesn't give rise to compassion. It just gives rise to a sense of hopelessness or helplessness. So it's important in the cultivation of compassion to focus in those areas where there seems to be really some hope that we can be empowered, we can help others be empowered in a very benevolent sense. Now what I'd like to do in this session this afternoon is do what we've done in the past, and that is first direct our attention inwards, not to the standard format or classic format, uh, if we go back to Buddha Gosa or other traditional sources, compassion is always looking outwards. That's why it's called compassion, a passion with someone else. But, once again, since we've demonstrated our ability to feel, mm, how do you say, internally bifurcated as we stand in judgment of ourselves, disappointed with ourselves and so forth, we can set up kind of an I-U relationship or even I-it relationship internally. A negative side, then maybe it also makes sense in a more positive sense, so clearly to arouse an aspiration that we ourselves may be free of suffering. Even if we may not call it compassion, it's certainly the starter for compassion, and then we just take that same aspiration and extend it outwards, and that which starts as an authentic motivation, or what the Buddha would call authentic intention. You might remember those among the Eightfold Noble Path. Authentic intention Or right motivation, sound motivation, renunciation, spirit of emergence, directed inwards, so it is called, directed outwards, we call it compassion. So where I'd like to focus the attention this afternoon, an area that is tractable, that is, there's something we can actually do about it, is mental suffering. Unless one is very far advanced along the path, in terms of either samadhi, or wisdom, insight. There's not a whole lot we can do about physical pain. You know, breaking a leg, having injury, getting ill, and so forth. It happens. It happens. And then we go for a doctor, we get the best medical treatment we can, but there's not a whole lot that can be done meditatively. A little bit, sure. But without really powerful samadhi, or very deep insight, for example, into emptiness, and then pretty much that's what's being dished up. And that's because you have nerve endings all over the place and we can't just control those with the mind unless, again, you have very deep samadhi. But when it comes to mental suffering, different kind of situation. Might we be free of mental suffering? So we have two large-scale strategies for freeing ourselves of the whole range, the whole bandwidth of mental suffering. One is the more active approach the developmental approach, the transformative, the effortful, where we see we're suffering from depression or anxiety or can't sleep or we get angry very easily and so forth and so on. And we see, ah, this mind's not working very well. These are the symptoms of a mind that is not in a state of balance. So roll up your sleeves, get in there and change your mind, right? Cultivating the four immeasurables, cultivating this, antidoting that, getting in there and like a mechanic working on a, on a car. Get in there and fix it, and then suffer less. That makes a lot of sense. So in that way, gradually, through transformation, developing new habits, as we are through the Four Immeasurables, we can suffer less. It's very good. And then there's another approach that is complementary. And that is when suffering arises. For example, you're settling the mind in its natural state. You see some restlessness arise. That's a very thin form, a very mild form of dukkha. Just restless. It doesn't feel good. You'd rather it not be there, right? Boredom is another one. We don't say, oh let's let's go out and be bored together, shall we? You know, let's have some let's have some boredom together. Nobody wants boredom, nobody wants restlessness. Both both of those are fairly superficial level of dukkha. It could be something more intense. It could be anxiety, it could be sadness, depression, and so on. When those arise, insofar as there's cognitive fusion with the emotion, then we suffer. It's being dished up, and we swallow it, and then we suffer. Now we're circling around, as we did this morning, and we'll continue to do so for the next couple of days, in this practice of settling the mind in its natural state, and I'd like to weave these together, the shamatha practice from the morning, the compassion practices in the afternoon. Really bring as much wisdom to the compassion, the compassion to the wisdom. And in the mind in its natural state. We're not simply attending to the appearances that arise objectively, like mentally listening to the chit-chat, mentally observing the images coming up, the memories, the fantasies, and so forth. We're also, and this is very important, we're also attending to whatever subjective impulses arise. So, for example, emotions and desires, whatever comes up, and to our very, the best of our ability, what even the emotions that come up, simply note them, simply note them without distraction and without grasping. In other words, note the emotion coming up and do your best not to be sucked up into it, to simply feel it from the inside, but simply notice that a certain emotional state, some emotional eruption has occurred. Be aware of it. Without distraction. Without grasping. It's a very different way. A radically different way. Of responding to emotions. I would suggest that normally. When unpleasant emotions arise. We try to suppress them. Or just run away from them. One of the, one of the two. What we don't want to do is just face them. So we try to change the topic, we try to recoil, we try to suppress it. We may take drugs to suppress depression, anxiety, insomnia, and so forth. Anything at all, kill the messenger. Kill the messenger. Don't don't want to deal with this. And so when unpleasant emotions arise, we just don't want them and we want to be free from them. And that means somehow escape or suppress them. And those are both expressions of grasping. Aversion, pushing away as much as is as much a type of grasping as pulling in. But now when pleasant emotions arise, you're sitting there quietly in meditation, and some maybe some happy thought or memory image arises, or maybe it's just coming right out of your meditation, you start feeling some real sense of well being. Then we want to cognitively fuse with it. And I like that. Okay, I want I like to feel happy. So I'm feeling happy. Oh good, let's let's hope it continues. I want to feel happy. Oh, I'm feeling happy. Good, good. Hold keep, hold that thought. <laughs> yeah. Try to make it continue. right? So on the one hand, we want to suppress or avoid. The other hand, we want to go into total cognitive fusion. These, I would suggest, are the normal responses to unpleasant and pleasant emotions. So what happens? You've had two weeks now to explore this. Whenever you feel like it, you have another six weeks. What happens when some unpleasant or negative emotion arises and you do your best to take your attention away from that which the emotion is about? I'm feeling sad about this, upset about that, angry about that. Get your attention off that which is arousing the emotion and look right at the emotion itself. Much more interesting in a way. Watch what happens. There's a statement from William James, and it's completely congruent with the assertion from Buddhist psychology, that whenever we turn our awareness inwards upon a subjective impulse such as an emotion or a desire, that subjective impulse that we're aware of is one that has just gone by. That is, we're not observing it in real time. Real time means we're getting it in exactly the same moment that it occurs. So, for example, let's take an example of real-time observation. Okay, Visualize a peach. A nice, juicy peach. Have that image come to mind. And I would suggest that the appearance of that image of a peach and your awareness of that appearance of a peach are occurring at the same time. Simultaneous. One doesn't come before the other. Exactly right. Right on time. Real time. But now when it comes to emotions, and that's more objective. That's more objective. But when it comes to emotions, these are very subjective. They don't arise out there, rising up to meet us. They arise from within. And it's as if they've absorbed us even by the time we're aware of them. But the point from William James and from the Buddhist psychology is that when we are aware of an emotion, the emotion of which we are aware is one that just went by. In other words, this is very short-term working memory. Very short-term memory. It could be one-tenth of a second, one-half of a second. But your awareness and the emotion that you're aware of, not simultaneous. You're aware of the emotion that just went by. Now, if the emotion has continuity, an ongoing feeling of sadness, then you may be aware of it on multiple moments. Looking back, looking back, looking back. And you may be sad that you're sad. And so you're looking back and you're picking up this sequence of, mo- of moments of sadness, but each one is just gone by. Just gone by. Right? But maybe you're not sad about being sad. Maybe you're not afraid of being afraid. Maybe you're not angry at being angry. Maybe you can bring a more neutral quality of awareness, a more neutral emotional state to this short-term recollection, which is an observation of the emotion that just went by. And when you do so, you've now interrupted the flow of the emotion that you're observing. That is, if you're observing it with a neutral state of equanimity. And the emotion you're observing was one of sadness. By the time you observe it, the mind you're observing it with is one of equanimity. And the sadness is already past tense. And that equanimity you bring to bear has now broken the continuity. Broken the flow of the sadness. That goes for anxiety, for fear, for other emotions as well. The act of observation itself breaks the flow of the emotion that you're observing. The emotion maintains its flow if it has a clear target, I'm sad about this, I'm f- afraid of that, I'm angry at that. So if I'm angry at this cell phone, just give it a target, give me a target. I'm angry at the cell phone that it's so old or what have you. Uh, then I just have to keep on looking at it. Maybe distaste, like dislike. Dislike, that's an emotion. I really don't like that ugly, old, old, embarrassingly old iPhone. I hope nobody sees that I have it. Or at least they'll think it's a four and not just a three, you know. And so I could be looking at it, and as long as I say, "Boy, it is really ugly, and it's so fat and thick compared to the new ones, and it's got so little memory, it's disgusting, and it doesn't even work as a phone because you can't take out the SIM card." I mean, it's really like it's not even a phone. It looked like a phone, but it's lying. It's not a phone at all. It just sits there. All it goes is ding, and we're supposed to call that an iPhone. You know, I'm really so disgusted at this thing. And so as I continue to attend to it, then I can feed my dislike, my aversion, my uttermost disgust at this old, decrepit iPhone. You know? But it has to be fed. I have to keep on looking at it. Right? But as that dislike is arising, if I suddenly get more interested in the dislike, the feeling of displeasure, then suddenly that flow is broken. So it's quite interesting therapeutically. You can actually break the flow of an emotion simply by being aware of it. You break the flow of an emotion by cutting off its food line. It's the food line. Right? I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. I'm angry. I'm angry. I'm angry. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. afraid, As I focus on different topics that feed. But it has to be fed every moment. Because the mind is always hungry. And it needs a prop to arise. So, we can break the flow of an unpleasant emotion simply by being aware of it without cognitive fusion, without grasping. But now are we willing to do it on the other side of the fence? And that is when a pleasant emotion arises. Some hedonic pleasure. It may be old, but it's mine. (laughs) It's not that bad. And when I get back to the United States, it will work. And I can Skype on it. I can email on it. I can talk on it. I can do mathematics on it. I can take photos with it. It is really quite a splendid device. And it will work when I get back where it works, you know. And so if I start to enjoy it and some pleasure arises, catalyzed, stimulated by some object that I'm attending to, oh, do I like that iPhone? Even when I get a new one, I'm going to keep this one. It's just a nice memorabilia. My first iPhone. Happy day when I'm feeling that pleasure arising, it can continue to arise, I can continue to enjoy it as long as I'm focusing on that which is feeding it, the good old antiquated iPhone. But as soon as I focus my awareness in upon the feeling itself, the pleasant feeling, well, exactly the same break in continuity of an unpleasant feeling that occurs when we really focus in on it. The same break occurs when you focus on a positive feeling. So in about a little bit more than an hour, we'll go over and we'll have some food. I hope you, have, I hope you enjoy your meal. And I'm about to give you some advice to enjoy it a little bit less. <laughs> and that is, when you've chosen carefully, as your eyes are scanning through that long series of food, and you're waiting for some pleasurable impulse to arise, visually like uh uh, uh. uh, uh, uh. uh, uh, uh. three things you just chose three things off the menu you know because it went Eep. like that the other ones uh. yeah. and so then you know when you get you bring out your tray you're going to go for the Eep and not for the uh right <laughs> and so now you just have a whole plateful of Eep. 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 you know and it's designed not only to nourish you but you know you want something that tastes good that's and taste good means as you look at it, as you smell it, but mostly when you put it into your mouth, pleasurable feelings arise. Right? So I invite you now to spoil your dinner. <laughs> at least spoil at least a little bit the pleasure you get from the dinner. And that is as you're taking a morsel of maybe the the tastiest thing that you could choose. You know, the one you didn't get just for nutrition, but you got that one, maybe the dessert. There's one that's just sheer for the pleasure of it. And you put it in and the pleasure arises. Focus your attention right in on the pleasure. Not on the food. Not on the taste. Focus your awareness right in on the pleasure experiencing. And what ha- what, watch, watch what happens to the pleasure. It'll be interesting. It may vanish. It may evaporate. Right under your gaze. Just like you remember the metaphor of the bashful maiden. Right? Well, the bashful maiden this time can be your own pleasure. So, now you can ask, are you willing to give up both? Or do you want to still cognitively refuse with the pleasurable sensations and only get rid of the negative ones? In which case, you can take out a long-term lease on the desire realm. Because <laughs> that's where you'll be for a long time. Right? Still banking on, investing in, relying upon the pleasures you can get from stimulation. That's what the desire realm is all about. And as long as you're there, then your mind will not settle in shamatha because you're always looking, you'll still be hankering after. Oh, where's some stimulation? Where's some... There's something. Oh, I can't get it sensually good. I'll generate it mentally and get some mental stimulation that arouses pleasurable feelings. So this little practice of settling the mind in its natural state, this little modest, quite simple, shamatha practice, of settling the mind in its natural state. And being willing to be even. And that is whatever emotions arise, whether they're unhappy emotions, whether they're really unwholesome emotions, emotions going along with hatred, resentment, ill will, and so forth, whether they're pleasant emotions, or they're pleasant emotions that go along with virtuous states, like like faith, devotion, gratitude, and so forth. Are you willing to be completely even not only with with respect to the objective appearances that arise, but also the subjective impulses that arise, the subjective feelings that arise, emotions that arise. And whatever comes up, pleasurable feeling or emotion, unpleasurable feeling or emotion, in either case with a total evenness, a one taste, observe the emotion that's coming up and simply be present with it to the best of your ability, not being sucked up in it, not trying to banish it, not trying to suppress it, not cognitively fusing with it and simply going along and enjoying it, but having an equal response to whatever emotion arises. And that is just from moment to moment, micro-moment, from micro-moment, observing whatever feeling arises and simply being present with it until it vanishes. It's a powerful training powerful training and it is a training that can provide you with freedom from mental suffering without transforming the mind. That is, without having to transform the emotions. Change it from an unpleasant one to a pleasant one from an un- unwholesome one to a wholesome one. Oh, that's worthwhile. That's one strategy. It's worthwhile. I'm not putting it down. But here is just a one-step, one-step procedure, strategy, to freedom, but it has to be even. Even with respect to the positive and the negative. Viewing them evenly, again, as if your awareness were space and observing whatever emotions arise and just observing their nature without hope or fear, without desire or aversion. That's freedom. It really is becoming lucid with respect to your own mind in the waking state so analogous to becoming lucid with respect to a dream while you're sleeping. Insofar as you're lucid in the dream, you really can maintain a great deal of equanimity with respect to whatever happens in the dream. It's just a dream. Whatever emotions are arising in response to dream events, don't take them too seriously. You're in a theater here. This is all make-believe. This is all just free creation. There's There's nothing about any substance here at all. So it's a one-step procedure to freedom from mental suffering right there in the waking state. But there's even greater significance than that, which is pretty big. And that is, imagine achieving shamatha. So you've really kind of matured. You've grown out of the childhood and adolescence of looking outwards for things, taking refuge in outer things, outer people, sensory stimulation, entertainment, reputation and so forth. You've just grown up, you've matured, you've grown out of that fixation of hoping that these appearances out there or even the appearances in your mind will somehow provide you with satisfaction, will give you the happiness you're seeking. You've just grown up and see, hey, that's never happened, it never will happen, it's not happening, therefore I'm not going to place any hope in that at all. right? Imagine that through that total disillusionment with the seduction of the desire realm, that then you allow your mind to melt away, to dissolve into the substrate consciousness, lucidly. And in so doing, you come to rest in your own substrate consciousness and you immediately experience these three delicious qualities, the three flavors, Neapolitan substrate, of relaxation. No, no, not relaxation. Of bliss, de samidopa. Bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. Right? Three flavors. Each one of them. The tastier than the last. When you're experiencing that, as i mentioned before, the temptation to latch onto them for dear life, you know, just to hold on to this. I got it. I finally got it. What I've been all looking for, always looking for. Something I can count on. Something reliable. Some sort of happiness I can come back to and is always there waiting for me. A true artesian well of happiness. And I finally got it. And you can see what my hands have done. Double fist. I'm holding on with both hands. I don't want to let this one go. Family come and go. Possessions come and go. But I don't want to leave my bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality because this is mine. And I worked hard to get it and I'm keeping it. (laughs) In which case, you've now just sealed the door and hammered it in and then welded it close to proceeding, progressing beyond the substrate consciousness to doing what's really important and that is breaking through the substrate consciousness to rigpa. Now, that's really a value. That's of infinite value. And so, what's the key? How? What is the key to be able to... I mean, just a simple key to being able to break through that substrate consciousness into Rippa pristine awareness, which is radically, ultimately, and completely liberating on a dimension immeasurably beyond that of shamatha. And the key there is... Be able to be simply present with your emotions while resting in shamatha. The emotions of desire. The the preference. The clinging, the grasping. To the bliss, the luminosity, the non-conceptuality. To be aware of the bliss of resting in the substrate consciousness and not be attached to it. To not even prefer it. But to observe it. To observe the luminosity without being totally absorbed by it. To observe the non-conceptuality without simply being absorbed by it. To observe the sense of satisfaction, the serenity, and so forth, all the emotions that go along with your experience of those three qualities. To observe it, but to observe it as if your awareness itself were space, with no preference, no clinging, no grasping. When you can do that, now you're poised to be able to break through. But as long as you still prefer it, still as long as you're still holding on, and you're stuck. You're stuck. So, this has significance on multiple levels. This practice of settling the mind, the mind into natural state is such a microcosm, such a dress rehearsal for the much bigger show of Dzogchen, where you're bringing these same qualities, but now, rather than being in the one theater of your own mind, that own your own private cinema, as you turn your awareness away from the five physical senses, which is kind of public domain, right? When I look at that statue, I'm seeing something quite similar to what you are, just from a different angle. So that's kind of public there. And that statue, of course, isn't just a figment of my imagination, it's not just something that arose out of my mind, but there was somebody who made it, and there was stone from which it was made, and that stone was formed geologically, and so it's got a whole history. In other words, I'm now out in a very vast world. Right? But to develop these qualities within this little individual room, your own private cinema, of the space of your mind and the contents arising within it, and develop some real sanity there, develop some the one-taste kind of awareness of whatever comes there, and then to go from that to opening awareness to everything's arising, well, that was a great dress rehearsal, a great preparation. So now to relate this to this afternoon's practice. But I, I hope some of the, I'm sure, some of the sense of the, kind of the, the magnitude, the, the import, the significance, the depth of this simple practice of settling the mind. It really is simple. Hopefully that becomes clearer and clearer. Wow, oh, the ramifications of that are really quite profound. Freedom, a one-step strategy for freedom. Quite, quite remarkable. Hmm. So as we return to the aspiration for freedom from suffering and its causes, focusing on mental suffering. Blatant suffering, the first dimension. Tomorrow we'll go to the more subtle, day after tomorrow to the most subtle. But today let's stay out there stay on this realm of just suffering that everybody knows about, especially the mental, everybody knows what it's like to feel miserable or bad, the whole gradient of feeling bad. Then if we relate that dimension of suffering, coarse suffering, latent suffering, to one of the three poisons of the mind, hostility, craving, delusion, which one of those three It's a rhetorical question. Which one of those three just feels bad? As soon as it arises, it just feels bad. Not desire. That can really feel quite good. Especially when we think, well, desire of either case. Maybe I'll get it. Maybe I'll get an iPhone 5 in the fall. They're coming out. I think I have enough money. I'm sure I have enough money. I could get one. The two cameras. The bigger, the bigger heart, or the bigger Oh, its so much better. I'm enjoying this already. I'm enjoying it in anticipation, and it's thin. It's really thin. Boy, I'll be—I'll have—I'll have the latest one. I can flip it out casually and show my friends. Oh, oh you don't have the oldest—the the, the latest one? Oh, I just got it. It's—it's it's very cool, <laughs> and I can already start to enjoy it even before I get it. I am enjoying this. This craving feels good. And then when I get it, it's fresh out of the box. It's been configured. It's really been made mine. And man, this is now my iPhone. It's even got my password. (laughs) This is really inherently mine. And it's mine. And it feels good. So attachment, craving attachment, can really feel quite good. That's why we keep on doing it. (laughs) And delusion... I'm not sure that ignorance is bliss, but often it doesn't feel that bad. (laughs) Not up front. It's not blatantly suffering. Miserable. It kind of feels like whatever. But among the three, hostility, craving, and delusion, it's obvious. Nobody's happy while they're hostile. While they're feeling resentment, hatred, ill will, enmity, and so forth. No one's happy. They may feel it's justified, but to say, how do you feel? I feel great. I am so pissed off. <laughs> People don't say that in the same breath. They may feel my anger is justified. This person did this and this to me and I have a right to feel the way I do. And But you don't really feel that good about it. And so among the three poisons, the one that, when it manifests, already feels bad. And then as this this whole bandwidth of anger, resentment, hatred, hostility, and so forth, when this arises, captivates the mind right off the... just immediately feels bad. And then the effects on your immune system, your digestive system, your autonomic nervous system, all of that's going to be bad. And then it flows out, in, if it flows out through your behavior, out through your mental activity, which is a type of behavior, out through your speech, out through your physical behavior, then that feeling of badness just spreads. Shanti Deva, when he's speaking about angry, says, you know, there's some people, even if they're you know the master of a household, like a king or somebody really in charge, and is able to you know, control, be in charge of other people. If the if the master is a hot tempered kind of person, angry person, even if servants want to leave. They'd rather just find some other employment because it's so unpleasant to work for somebody who's angry, hot-tempered, irascible, mean. Nobody likes that. So even if you have lots of money, people won't even want to be near you. So the kind of the, the bad smell of anger just percolates out to your environment. And if you're in a family, you make other people in the family miserable. Employees become they implicitly. A stranger phones you up up on the phone. You make them miserable. It's contagious even over the telephone. You can make your misery over the internet. So all miserable. And what is so often the case, if not inevitably, is when the anger arises, you feel it's justified. I have a right to feel this way. I got swine flu a couple of years ago when I went and visited England. It was one of those gifts that just keeps on giving. I had it for a couple of months afterwards. At no point when I was suffering from the symptoms of the swine flu did I feel, I have a right to feel, have swine flu. This is justified swine flu. I can have swine flu as long as I like. You know, I never felt that. I just like, oh, this feels crappy. It just happened. And I would suggest that the notion that your anger is justified is about as irrational as thinking that your swine flu is justified. Anger overall, the self-centered anger, is simply an expression of inability to deal with reality. Just that. Something unpleasant happens, deal with the reality. It's unpleasant. Can you do something about it? Do it. If you can't, Cool. Chill. Now that's a realistic response. But, at a point, we can no longer deal realistically, and then we just get angry. Like a pot that just bubbles over and spills all over the floor. Too much, blah 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 blah. And makes a big mess. And so, anger really is a sign of weakness. Sign of mental imbalance. Which then we justify. irrationally. So, if we look for a mental affliction among the wide variety, but we're focusing on three especially, that is at the root of inconceivable, not unimaginable degree of misery in the world, anger really comes up as a big candidate. Anger, hatred, contempt, rage, Resentment the stuff that happens just within a couple, a man and wife, parent and child, siblings, one family to the next family, one country to the next country, and so forth. The amount of suffering that comes because of that one mental affliction is beyond all reckoning, beyond imagination, and it's not necessary. That's a, a really big statement, but it's not necessary. Because anger as a mental affliction is not hardwired, it's not intrinsic to our very being. It is a mental affliction. Like swine flu, it's a physical affliction. Anger is a mental affliction. And it's one for which there is a cure. Because it doesn't go all the way down to the deepest levels of consciousness. It doesn't even go down as far as the substrate consciousness. Nobody can rest in the substrate consciousness and be pissed off at the same time. Can't do it. One has to give. If you're angry, you can either descend, 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 and have your anger evaporate and go down to the substrate consciousness, or you can be angry, 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 and then no longer descend. It will just keep you up, buoyed up there in the coarse mind. You can't bring anger to the substrate consciousness. You can't coexist there. So to wrap this up, when anger does arise, this most perhaps it is the most talk certainly among the three, it may in a way be the most superficial because if there's no attachment, there won't be any anger. That never happens. No attachment at all, no anger. So in a way, it's the most superficial. If you have attachment, it may not be feeling anger, but it's ready. It's like a cocked gun. If I'm attached to this iPhone, then I'm just ready to be angry if it breaks, or somebody steals it, or somebody disparages it, or pretty much anything, right? If I'm attached to it, then I'm ready. I'm just, just on your mark, it said, be angry, you know? Drop of a hat, I can be angry as soon as I'm attached to it. No attachment, there's no way I'm going to feel angry about the iPhone, or anything that happens to the iPhone, if I have no attachment to it. That goes from my body, it goes from my mind too. No attachment, no anger. And, that said, no delusion, no attachment. If there's no ignorance or delusion, then attachment doesn't arise. Because attachment's always, by definition, rooted in a misapprehension of reality, always rooted in delusion. So the delusion doesn't feel much one way or another, happy, sad. The craving and attachment often feels quite good. But the anger pretty much always feels bad. Final point. In my many very fruitful, meaningful, friendly conversations with my esteemed friend, Paul Ekman, who is so well-versed in psychology and also Darwinian theory, evolutionary theory. He says quite rightly, and he's had many conversations with the Dalai Lama on this point as well, he says quite rightly, from an evolutionary perspective, evolutionary psychology, anger is very useful, can be useful, at the right time, in, this, in the right mode of expression, with the right degree. It's very Aristotelian as well. Aristotle did not think of anger as just something that you have to banish. But appropriate situation, appropriate magnitude, appropriate expression. Then it's okay. Right? And what's the purpose of anger from an evolutionary, biological, or psychological perspective is, and I quote Paul Ekman here, anger has the function of removing obstacles. Removing obstacles. So I want something, I want something and then something gets in the way. I want, I want it, I'm wanting and then something gets in the way. I'm not getting what I want. Piss off! Good. And now I get what I want, you know? Maybe it's just piss off in a good, angry, strong, deep voice. Piss off! Not, piss off! That doesn't work. It's got to have some real muscle behind it, right? You have to sound like you mean it. Piss off? Doesn't work. Doesn't work. So, it can be just words. It can be a well-placed fist. It can be the expressions of it, but the idea is, I want something and something's in the way. Piss off! And then it's gone, and then I get what I want. Or, and this didn't come up so clearly in, from... My conversation with Paul, but it's certainly true from the Buddha side. It's not that something's getting in the way of what I want, but something is giving me something that I don't want. Like swine flu. There was nothing in the way, it just came, and then who gave me this swine flu? Who what? I know who gave me the swine flu? Actually I do. <laughs> I'm a bit pissed that you gave me this swine flu. Instead of giving me done at the end of the teaching, you gave me swine flu all through the teaching. (laughs) Not what I wanted. You know? So getting something we don't want, that also arouses anger. Right? And that may be able to counteract somebody giving us something we don't want. So, can it be useful? Yes, but at a cost. First of all, the disruption in one's own body and mind system. Also, when we get our way, when we get our way with another person or situation by way of anger, we've intimidated somebody else, made them feel bad, look for the collateral damage. You can now be anxious because <laughs> you've given them a reason to be angry and they are waiting for their, for their chance to retaliate because they didn't like it when we gave them a piece of our mind, the crappiest piece of our mind. They didn't like it and now they got the crappiest piece of their mind and they're just waiting to give it back. You know. So there's that little problem that we may get the job done but then what's the collateral damage? In terms of the pursuit of genuine happiness, the collateral damage may be there regardless of anybody else's retaliation and so really is it worth it? I have to ask myself that. From my very limited perspective as a deluded sentient being, when I think back on the times that I've expressed anger, felt it and expressed it, with the intention that something change, that I get something done, get what I do want or don't get what I don't want, was that the most skillful means? Was that the best strategy? among all possibilities, was that the optimal one? I still can't think of a single situation or less. It may have gotten the job done. But was that the optimal way to get the job done? Bear in white, different ways of skinning a cat. Well, that was one way of getting the job done, but could it, could it have gotten done another way without the anger? I keep on coming back to, yeah, I think so. So let's end for the second time. On the theme, is there ever a case when anger and an expression of anger might be optimal? And according to the Mahayana teachings, the Vajrayana teachings, the answer is yes. Yes, sometimes display of ferocity, display of wrath is the best response. But where is it coming from? If it's coming from delusion, reifying, totally objectifying, substantiating that target of the anger, the one to whom one's expressing the anger, then it's not optimal. Then it's just one more mental affliction rooted in delusion. How can that be best? If it can be best, it has to be rooted, rooted in reality, not in delusion. So if it's the same old anger, no matter what the circumstance, but it's rooted in delusion, then it can't be optimal. Delusion can never be optimal. Right? So just for starters, if this is going to be the optimal, this display of ferocity or wrathfulness, if it's going to be the optimal response to get something very meaningful done, some shift in reality, it can't be rooted in delusion. It's got to be rooted in a clear vision of reality. There's one point. And second point is it rooted in self-centeredness, my well-being is more important than yours. You know? If it's rooted in self-centeredness, there's no way, it doesn't matter what's it about, whether it's you're against racism, against child pornography, whether you're against ethnic cleansing, whatever you're against, if the root of it is either delusion or self-centeredness, self-cherishing, my well-being is more important than yours, I am more valuable than you are, then there's no way, because that's not true, once again that's rooted in delusion, there's no way, it doesn't matter how justified, how noble the campaign, how righteous the cause, if it's deluded if it's rooted in delusion or rooted in self-centeredness, there's no way, on any occasion at any time, that the expression of anger, ferocity, wrath will be the best one. It can't be. How can delusion be better than seeing reality as it is? Whereas in contrast, so there is some injustice in the world. And oh, there we have Ponty some injustice in the world. If one's vision of the injustice and the perpetrators of the injustice is rooted in reality with a broad vision of Pratita samudpada, here's the injustice and here are the many factors coming together. And seeing this with clarity, without reification, without this grasping onto the inherent intrinsic existence of anything, others or oneself, if there's a clear vision. And out of that clear vision comes compassion, May suffering be banished, May the causes of suffering be banished, and it's not rooted in self-centeredness. My side versus your side, me versus you. If it's rooted simply in all-encompassing compassion, may the justice, the injustice, be dispelled with a broad vision of wisdom. Then on some occasions, the ferocity is just what the doctor ordered. then it's time. And we see it. Not so easy, I think, to have your ferocity rooted in wisdom and motivated by compassion. But if it is, then you've chosen with wisdom to express yourself by way of ferocity. And the juice behind it, the passion behind it, is compassion. Not egocentric. Passion. Then we see it. So, lamas sometimes display that. Not just because they're pissed off, not because they're failing, not because they're not that kind of bad lama. does happen. I've experienced it. Not often. I've experienced it sometimes for my lamas. And it was clear when I was getting it, when I was feeling the heat, there was no self-centeredness from the side of the lama. There was nothing such selfish. Zero. And they saw spot on. They saw with 20-20 vision. I'm thinking one particular case. I won't give this story. But it's just it's not a big deal. It was just one of those things that comes up. But my Lama, it was Ghatra Rinpoche. He saw with perfect clarity some aspect of reality. And out of only compassion, he let me have it. I Expressed a bit of ferocity. He was exactly right. Just what the doctor wanted. So it happens. So that was a long time. Blah, 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 blah. But hopefully a little bit helpful to weave these together, the settling the mind in its natural state. To do so with compassion for yourself. May I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And let the emotions roll with a one-step strategy for freedom. Okay? So let's practice. There's still a little bit of time left. To engage in such meditation becomes, becomes all the more feasible, practical. If we begin from a vantage point of equilibrium, of balance, settle your body in its natural state, your respiration in its natural rhythm, and balance your mind with mindfulness of breathing. And now let's move into the more active mode. Deliberately bring to mind the bandwidth of mental suffering to which you are still prone and that you've experienced in the past. With the awareness that for the time being at least, it may well be true that other people can make you suffer. Diseases, natural calamities, injuries can make you suffer physically. may well be the case. But what power outside of yourself really has the power to make you suffer mentally? So bring to mind the range of mental suffering to which you are still vulnerable, especially that which is catalyzed by the mental affliction of anger and hatred. And symbolically, if you wish, visualizing the deepest, the primordially pure dimension of your awareness as an orb of light at your heart, forever untainted, undefiled, pure. With each in-breath, arouse the yearning, may I be free of suffering, blatant mental suffering, and its causes. As you arouse this compassionate aspiration, imagine symbolically the darkness of such suffering and its causes, being siphoned into and dissolving, vanishing without trace in the light at your heart, drawing it in and extinguishing it with each in-breath. With each in-breath, imagine becoming free of the suffering of its causes, becoming free of the grasping onto and the identification with mental suffering and its causes. Imagine the lightness of being once you are no longer encumbered by such suffering and its inner causes. Then extend your awareness outwards to another person or group of persons who are suffering mentally. Attend closely as if from their own perspective. With each in-breath arouse the yearning, may you be free of suffering and its causes. Imagine drawing in the darkness of their own misery, siphoning it into the orb of light at your heart, and there extinguish it without trace. at your own pace, let your attention shift to another person. Practicing as before. And direct your attention to someone who appears to suffer because of the mental affliction of anger or hatred. Attend closely with the eyes of compassion and wisdom. As you breathe in, arouse the yearning. May you be free of this intense cause of misery and all the misery that it results in. Imagine drawing that darkness in and dissolving it without trace. And from breath to breath, imagine this person becoming free of this terrible affliction of the mind. Let your attention rove at will, expanding the field of compassion. Then withdraw your awareness from all appearances, and release all aspirations. Let your awareness rest doing nothing, simply illuminating its own nature. So we have a few written questions here. First one is why do many people enter a lucid dream as if they're leaving their body? So why do they have that experience? And maybe they want to leave the body. That is, in a lucid dream you kind of, you can get what you want. And if what you really like to do is leave your body, then you get to. But whether your consciousness is really coming out of the body into into a subjective reality that other people experience, that's an open question. If it does, it's very cool. More often than not, it's just an illusion. And why do they often hear a loud noise before leaving the body? I have no idea. (laughs) On that point, I stand irrefutable. (laughs) Oh, not so. Thank you, Rosa. Which Rosa? This Rosa or that Rosa, that was yeah. Oh lasso. On Saturday you're talking about Dujum Ningba and mentioned the four thoughts that turn the mind. Could you comment on this if there is time? Oh that's a big, big topic. So there's time to mention that it's reflecting upon the enormous preciousness and value of being a human being and having full opportunity and leisure to practice Dharma and to be aware of how extremely rare that is. To reflect upon the nature of impermanence in general and one's own mortality in particular, especially the fact that you no know, guarantee any of us will see the sunrise tomorrow. That's the second one. To reflect upon the full bandwidth of suffering. That creates a real turning about. nam namji means your mind is like turning 180 degrees. Away from the fixation on samsara, the desire realm and so forth to a total investing, like total investment in dharma. Big revolution, 180 degree revolution. Really reflecting on the bandwidth, the whole spectrum of suffering has a powerful impact, and then ref- and then finally reflecting on karma. The fact that we are really oh, creating our future. Summarize with just one aphorism, it's an enormous topic, of course, <coughs> but a nice aphorism from the Tibetan tradition. A lot of people wonder who or what they were in their past life or lives. And a lot of people wonder, that is, if they take any of this seriously, what they'll be in the future life. So the aphorism goes, if you want to know what kind of conduct you engaged in, in the past life, which would imply, have something to say about the life form you took. If you want to know about your past life, look at your body. Because in Buddhist understanding, your body is a creation of your action from past life. You're handsome, you're ugly, you're sick, you're healthy, long life, short life, and so forth. Look at your body. This this is kind of like, you can draw inferences about past life, depending on what what kind of a body you've got. And then if you want to know about the future, look at your mind. So you want to know about the past, look at your body. You want to know about the future, look at your mind. Because your mind is creating your future right now. What is the difference between reason and intuition? How can you identify them? What is considered a thought? Boy, you people are not keen on small questions, are you? Between reason and intuition, reason always so. Reason, intellect, logic, always has because of this, therefore that. Because I see smoke, there must be fire, and so forth. So it always has something now. And sometimes reason can obviously make a mistake. We draw false inferences. But it's always because of this, therefore that. So it's an intellectual process. Always entails conceptualization. Always. Reason by nature. is always using conceptual mind. Sometimes very effectively. Enormously create creative. Crucial for understanding many aspects of the path. So there is reason. And then intuition is a way of knowing that circumvents, that does not draw on intellect, Reasoning reasons themselves, but a more immediate knowing. So that's that. Now, of course, to distinguish in that in that in that regard, then reason and intuition are relatively easy to distinguish. Or to if we if we define intuition as a way of knowing, of course, intuition can be defined multiple ways. But if we define intuition as a way of knowing, then the big challenge is. Are you intuitively knowing something, or are you simply having a hunch, or simply a guess, or is it simply wishful thinking? And that's a whole can of worms. How do you identify them? Trial and error, But you keep on working at it. Often we'll have intuitions, and then it turns out that it was completely wrong, and it wasn't an intuition at all. We thought it was an intuition, it was just a wrong guess. So, what is very helpful in that regard is when an intuition does arise to try to recognize clearly the process by which it arose. right? Whether there was some desire, some preconception, whether it was already filtered, colored, tainted. So, this fellow, I don't know him well, but we spent a bit of time together. Russell Targ. Russell Targ, the physicist who spent years and years studying remote viewing, precognition and so forth. He said... As you try to cultivate, cultivate that ability, and they did it in a, you know, quite a lightweight way, not years of training, but days of training, to try to train subjects so they could be, be tested for their remote viewing, precognitive skills. Uh, he commented that the quality of awareness you need for such remote viewing, a type of intuition, precognition, a type of intuition, to arise and to be accurate, he said, your mind must be very calm, must be very stable, must be very clear, and it must be free of conceptual noise, which is bound to bias, to nudge, to warp whatever's coming through, because it it will then need to conform to your expectations. So if if you hear of any type of meditative practice that could be helpful in that regard, let me know. I think that would be really, really good to practice. So what is considered a thought? Well, let's just think about that one. Or there's any concept. This is too big for right now. (laughs) (laughs) This one has to be shorter. It is, okay. So, direct non-, oh, going back to this. Direct non-conceptual realization of emptiness is presented as the antidote to all kinds of obstructions. And also that during its realization, All dualistic appearances vanish. So, in which sense does the realization of rikpa go beyond this niko? Which niko? We have so many nikos here. Which niko? That niko. Okidoki. So, very good. So, I like that one. That one I can wrap my mind around. And that's what we get to, just when we have more time. Let's approach it this way. Imagine you're in the midst of a dream, but you don't you don't know you're dreaming. Just this is what's happening, right From outside, or maybe from later on, you would retrospectively or from outside say, "Oh, you're having a dream, you're in the midst of a non- lucid dream." Okay. But you are in fact dreaming. let's imagine that okay but you don't know it in the midst of the dream, you find yourself quite dissatisfied, restless, disturbed, no contentment, and it's a long dream. So you try out a lot of things, money, sex, music, whatever, to see if it gives you some real satisfaction. It doesn't, surprisingly no. And so, as you're roaming around looking for some satisfaction, something that seems meaningful, you encounter somebody a teacher. You come to come to this person with dissatisfaction, saying, yeah, I've tried everything, money and all the rest. It didn't give me any satisfaction at all. You have anything else? Anything else? Oh yeah. Sure. Try Shamatha. It teaches you Shamatha. So it's a long dream. <laughs> <laughs> you practice Shamatha, practice Shamatha. And it turns out really well. And right there in the midst of the dream you're you achieve shamatha. Bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. Pretty good stuff. But you have to come out. And there it is, the same old dream. And they're nasty people, unpleasant situations, adversity, felicity, the same old stuff. You've got shamatha, but still, the world is still happening. And it's not very pleasant. And so you go back to the, to the lama and say, "You yeah, that was nice, I have an escape route. When I want to withdraw from the world, I can withdraw into a nice place. But I keep on having to come out again. And the world I'm coming out to is the same old place, and it's not very pleasant. And can you give me anything else beyond this? And the Lama says, oh yeah, I'm glad you asked. And, said, and then he gives you some answers to man. Uh, so the Lama says, well, start investigating into the nature of appearances. Everything appears to be existing entirely from its own side. You seem to be really here. I am. I can be insulted. I can be praised. I feel unhappy. I feel happy. I'm really here. My mind's really here. My body's really here. You're really all over there. The environment's really out there. Everything appears that way. It's either really in here or it's really out there. But now investigate more carefully. Is that really the case? When you really probe into the nature of appearances and the objects that seem to populate the world you're living in, are they really absolutely out there as you thought? Investigate carefully. So, a long dream. And you really investigate. You're applying. And, and he gives you full, full teachings of Vipassana. Of really probing into how all phenomena are empty of names, empty of objectivity, empty of inherent nature. All being conjured up. Conjured up. The whole world of things being conjured up by the, by the process of conceptual imputation but devoid of any inherent existence, independent of imputation. Quite a revelation, quite a revolution. And so you start gaining some real insight into all the emptiness of everything that appears objectively, that it seems to be really out there, but it's not. You investigate it, there's nothing there from its own side. And you observe yourself inwardly, and there's nothing in here from your own side. Either you're really starting to get insight, direct experiential insight, liberating insight. And through this process, when you see there's nothing absolutely in here, nothing absolutely out there, you also see, ha, there's an ongoing process of creation here and I'm creating the world I'm living in by the process of conceptual designation and that means, now that I've realized that nothing here is inherently existent, really substantially there from its own side, I can start shaping this reality by just altering my conceptual designations. And you start playing with it. Frolicking with it, say, "Wow, this is all fluid, malleable, and you're finding you can shape shift, and you can transform, and you can be a magician. You're a sorcerer. You're a siddha. Change in this world because you see everything is empty of inherent nature. And so much freedom, and really now you don't. Have, you're not suffering anymore. Nothing makes you suffering because there's nothing here. There's no one really here to suffer. No one out there really to make you suffer. Everything empty." And you're seeing the emptiness of everything objectively and everything subjectively. And there's such freedom in that. And the Lama comes back and says, you know, you see, this is all very much like a dream. You say, yeah, it really is. This is so much like a dream. And this is really good. And really realized emptiness. But then a little thought comes up. Go back to the Lama. You got anything more? He said, yeah, this isn't like a dream. This is a dream. This is a dream. Wake up. And you become lucid. So, that's the microcosm. And the macrocosm is, realize the emptiness of all phenomena in the waking state. how dreamlike all phenomena are. And then get the pointing out instructions. This is not dreamlike. This is a dream. You are pristine awareness. And all of these are the creative displays of pristine awareness. And this is a dream from the one true perspective. And that's Rigpa. Something like that. Did I make a mistake? Okay. She knows much more than I do. So good. Good. Nice story, though, isn't it? Has to be a long dream, though. (laughs) Maybe, though, one lifetime would be long enough. That would be good. So start young. Wherever you are, start young. However old you are, start young. Whether you're 60 or 70, start young. Young 70. Then there's hope. Lots of hope. So So I think it's too late to say enjoy your meal. Because I already blew that one for you. So get good nourishment. See you tomorrow morning. (laughs)